listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Okay, please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke. Remember, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So it's the third gospel in your New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you like to read the Bible on your phone, we encourage you to use that YouVersion Bible app. Even if you go in, you log in, you can go into events. You can get all the stuff that's on the screen and some more things to interact with. We just want you to get as much out of the sermon and the teaching time as possible. Hey, for the month of December, what we've been doing is a series called God With Us, in which we've been looking at the incarnation and how the coming of Jesus into the world isn't just the arrival of a a good role model or a good teacher or an excellent person, but it was God himself come to us in order to save us. So that's been our series topic for the month of December into Christmas and now beyond, the incarnation, God with us. And today... It's our last week of the series and our last week of the year. Next week, we're going to be kicking off a new series on the topic of vision. I know it's cliche, but we have to do it because 2020 only comes around once, right? So we're going to talk about vision. So that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be looking at some of the visions that God gave people in the Bible, and then we're going to be seeking the Lord together as a church and as individuals for God's vision for our lives and for our church. I'm really looking forward to that. That'll be for the month of January, and then we'll get back into our verse-to-verse study of Second Peter in February. So this week, though, we're going to wrap up this God With Us series, and I thought, hey, since it's the Sunday after Christmas, it's only appropriate, isn't it, that we talk about what happened with Jesus after Christmas. So that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at the little that the Bible tells us about Jesus' childhood. The title of today's message is The Soul Felt Its Worth. What we've been doing in this series is each message is titled with a line from a famous Christmas hymn, and that one comes from O Holy Night, which we're going to sing at the end, right? The Soul Felt Its Worth. Our reading today comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. When the time came, For their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed him and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that as we come to it, Lord, give us understanding, but also, Lord, help us by your spirit to put these things into practice in our lives. That we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but that we would be doers of your word as well. And Lord, that you would do a transforming work in us in this way, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, there's very little we know about Jesus's childhood and early life. We know that he began his public ministry at age 30, 
The four Gospels tell us a lot about what happened during the three or so years that Jesus was doing his public ministry. But that's three years. What about the 29 years before that? Like, what did Jesus do during that time? Well, two of the Gospels, Mark and John, tell us zero about what Jesus did. They don't even talk about his birth. They just jump straight in to his ministry time. So two of the Gospels don't say anything about Jesus' early life. Matthew's Gospel only really tells us this, that he spent a number of years, we don't know how many, in Egypt as a kind of refugee because they were hiding from King Herod. If you remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. King Herod, when he heard that a new king, the rightful king, the rightful heir to the throne of Israel had been born, he felt that that was a threat to his power. So he tried to have the baby Jesus killed. And so Jesus and his parents fled to Egypt for some number of years. We don't exactly know how long. But that's all that Matthew tells us. And here in Luke, Luke gives us two stories. He's the only one who really tells us anything about Jesus' childhood and early life. And he only gives us two stories. They both center around the temple in Jerusalem. And they only take up half a chapter here in Luke chapter 2. Now why is that? Why is it that we are not told more about Jesus' childhood? Well, I would say most likely it's because there wasn't much to talk about. Right, hear me out on this. Jesus lived in his early years mostly in simplicity and obscurity. Mostly in simplicity and faithful obscurity. The few details that we are told about his early life, these are what are important for us to know because these two stories tell us important things about Jesus, who he is, and what that means for us. Everything else in his early life apparently wasn't very important for us to know. Now, there are some writings out there that I, I looked into. I, I had to read them when I was in school and seminary, but I, I revisited them this week. They're called the Infancy Gospels. Sometimes they're called Gnostic Gospels, but specifically it's a kind of part of the Gnostic Gospels, which are kind of later editions that did not, were not included in the Bible. And there are these infancy gospels, which kind of purport to tell stories from Jesus's childhood. Now, they're not in the Bible, and for good reason. Like, if you ever hear somebody who's like, oh, well, I heard about, you know, aren't there other gospels? Well, I would just say, go and read them for yourself, because what you'll find is that they are absolutely ridiculous. You will find that there's a reason why they're not included in the Bible. Also, from a historical standpoint, they're written Years later, many years later, hundreds of years later, after the rest of the New Testament was written, and they're mostly written by people, especially with the infancy gospels, people who couldn't, they like could not resist the urge to try to fill in the gaps that the Bible had left, the so-called silent years, right, that don't, we're not told about this, 29 years of Jesus' life before he began his ministry. And so these people trying to fill in the gaps, a lot of them came up with kind of bizarre legends about Jesus as a child, and I think they're actually very funny. I just want to share a few of them with you. So from the infancy gospel of Thomas, it basically portrays Jesus kind of like Dennis the Menace with superpowers. He's like a cross between Dennis the Menace and Luke Skywalker and Harry Potter. He's always getting into trouble. He's a 
naughty kid. It all begins that one day Mary and Joseph's neighbors come over and they complain because Jesus has been playing tricks on them and he's made them all go blind. And so they're like, hey, tell your son to give us our sight back because we don't like being blind. So Mary and Joseph go and they scold Jesus. They tell him to knock it off. Don't do that anymore and make, give those people back their sight. And so he does, right? And a little later on, Jesus is playing in the street and he's kind of creating this kind of like a dam in the, in the middle of the dirt street so that when the water comes in, it collects in this, you know, little reservoir he's made. And this other kid comes by and like kicks out his dam and ruins the thing that Jesus has been playing with. So what does Jesus do? He kills him, right? He just zaps him with this kind of curse that makes his body turn into a corpse on the spot and he dies, right? So Jesus apparently has a bad temper when he's a child. So according to these, right? And so then another thing happens where this other kid comes and kind of like bumps into Jesus on purpose with his shoulder. You know how kids do like in the hall, you bump into each other kind of to intimidate each other. Well, Jesus didn't like that. So he killed that guy too, right? Jesus just killing people left and right in these infancy gospels, right? He's, again, he's more like Draco Malfoy than he is like Jesus Christ, right? And, and Jesus has these gurus in, in the infancy gospel of Thomas, these mentors who come around and they kind of like teach him how to use his powers for good and not for evil. Again, kind of like Yoda teaching Luke how to use the force. The other infancy gospels or infancy narratives, they also say ridiculous things like that Jesus talked when he was in the manger and like had conversations with people or they would take Jesus's kind of used bath water and they would sprinkle it on people and they'd get healed. Again, it's just silly, ridiculous stuff that the Bible knows nothing about. Because again, what we have here, especially in the Gospel of Luke, Luke wants us to understand this is not once upon a time. These are distinct things. So you can be sure about the things about Jesus. He went and got eyewitness accounts. These aren't legends. Here's what we do know about Jesus's childhood. Number one, Interestingly, we know that Jesus didn't perform any miracles during his childhood. How do we know that? Well, it says in John chapter 2, when we read about the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine, it says there in John 2, verse 11, that this was the first miracle or the first sign by which Jesus revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. So it says right there, that was the first miracle he performed there at the wedding of Cana. The second thing we know about Jesus' early childhood and early life is this, that his parents knew that he was the Messiah, but they didn't go around telling people about it. They kind of kept it to themselves. Now, in large part, this was probably for Jesus' safety. We know what happened with Herod is that people in the Roman government, people in the local kingdom run by the Herod dynasty, they would not have been happy to have someone come on the scene who claimed to be the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, the throne of David. They would have viewed that as a threat and they would have done everything they could to stop it. And so Mary and Joseph knew that, right? They had spent time in Egypt in exile. So they come back and they just kind of keep it on the down low until the time comes for the big reveal. And we know that big reveal came at the time when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. That was the big reveal. But until that time, we can be sure that Mary and Joseph probably talked, at least within their family, about the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. You can imagine when they went to Egypt, Jesus as a young child asking, why can't we go home? And they said, well, because we're here in Egypt. Why are we here in Egypt? Well, they would explain. They'd explain the angelic visions. They would explain the prophecies. They would explain, you know, remember that angels also appeared to 
Mary's cousin, Elizabeth, and Zachariah. We talked about that the Sunday before Christmas. And so this, these weren't secrets that they didn't know. They knew absolutely that Jesus was the Messiah, but they kept it on the down low until the time for the big reveal. But we, we also know that prior to Jesus' big reveal at age 30 at the Jordan River at the baptism, there were some discerning people who were able to kind of pick up on what was happening. They were able to pick up on the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And we're going to see two of those people here in Luke chapter 2. What do we know about Jesus' early life and childhood? And what does it tell us about who he is? And what does it mean for us today? These are what we're going to be looking at. And the first thing we see is this. He who was rich became poor. He who was rich for our sakes became poor. See, the account of what happened after Christmas begins really in Luke 2, verse 21. So one verse before we began our reading. And it says this, at the end of eight days, Jesus was circumcised. Now this was in accordance with the law of Moses and what the biblical Old Testament law required. And what Luke really wants us to see very clearly is that Jesus perfectly fulfilled all of the requirements of the law. Jesus fulfilled all the requirements of God's law. Now this is, this is really important, and here's why. Because you and I, we have not succeeded in living up to all of God's requirements, God's standards. If you wanted me to prove it to you, I could walk you one by one through the Ten Commandments, and I could show you that at least on almost every single step of those Ten Commandments, you and I have failed to live up to those standards. In fact, I would go even further and say, let's not even talk about the Ten Commandments. If I even asked you, what is the standard of how somebody should behave? I'll bet if we looked at your life, we could see that you don't even live up to your own standards most of the time. So the thing is, not only do we not live up to our own standards, we haven't lived up to God's standards. And maybe you would say, hey, well, nobody's perfect, right? Everybody makes mistakes. And I would agree with you wholeheartedly. That is absolutely right. Nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. But the thing is, that's actually a problem. It's a problem because what it means is that we have fallen short. We have fallen short. We have sinned. We cannot stand before God unashamed. Because we've sinned. And if God is the righteous judge of all the earth, as the Bible says, then that means that our wrong actions and attitudes have to be dealt with. They warrant his judgment. And so this fact that, yes, it's true, we've all failed, none of us are perfect, but that's actually a problem when it comes to dealing with a holy God. See, part of the reason why God came into this world was so that as a human, he could live the life that you should have lived. He came to live that perfectly, uh, that perfect life that fully fulfilled all of God's requirements and standards. And this is why in, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. Later on, Paul the Apostle explains it to us this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, He, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus came and he produced a perfect track record. He scored 100%, 10 out of 10, a perfect 10, perfect obedience, perfect righteousness, perfectly fulfilled, all the requirements of the law, and he offers that record to you as his gift to you. 
And in return, he takes your flawed record, your failing grade. He took the punishment that you deserved, and he gives you his record, his righteous record. That's now accounted to you. He scratched out his name and wrote your name at the top of the paper. That is the great exchange of the gospel. So Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day to fulfill the requirements of the biblical law. Now this set of laws, if you're curious and looking into it, this set of laws is found in Leviticus chapter 12. Leviticus chapter 12, if you'd like to look it up. And there you'll see in Leviticus 12, it's not just about circumcision. It also talks about the rituals that parents would have to perform whenever a child was born. And so when it says here in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. What it's referring to is Leviticus chapter 12, which says that when a baby was born, a sacrifice had to be made. And this sacrifice was for two reasons. It symbolized two things. Number one, it symbolized purification. On the other hand, it symbolized dedication. So purification and dedication. Luke chapter 12 says that when the sacrifice that had to be presented at the birth of a baby was two animals. One was a lamb, which was for a burnt offering. The other was a turtle dove or a pigeon, which was for a sin offering, was to make atonement, cleanse from sin or cover sin before God. Now these sacrifices were highly symbolic. Specifically, if you go through Leviticus, you'll see that there were seven different kinds of sacrifices, and each sacrifice had a unique purpose. They weren't all to cover sin. So, for example, the burnt offering symbolized dedication. It symbolized dedication. And the reason was because in a burnt offering, you would take this animal and you would put all of the animal onto the altar and then the fire would come up from under the the grate, which which the altar is on. It's like a big grill in a way. And you would let that fire burn up that animal until there was nothing left, until it was wholly consumed and it was all gone. And what that communicated, this burnt offering, it essentially communicated this. You're saying, God, I give you everything and I hold nothing back. Because see, there were other sacrifices where you would essentially cook the meat and then you would eat it as a fellowship offering. You would eat it with friends, even with the priests sometimes. But in the burnt offering, you wouldn't keep anything. You would burn up the entire sacrifice until it was all gone. You're saying, God, this is what I want, not just with this sacrifice, but with my life in every area. I hold nothing back. I am wholly dedicated, wholly committed to you. So when a parent would bring in a child to the temple and they would sacrifice a lamb as a burnt offering, this is what they were communicating. They were saying, Lord, I am dedicating this child to you. You gave me this child and I'm giving him or her back to you and I want to honor you with the way I raise this child and my prayer is that this child will grow up to love you and serve you with all of their life and everything they are. That's, that's the idea of dedicating a child. We still do that, by the way. We do it here at our church. We, we'll do baby dedications where we bring up the parents. And they'll bring their baby in front of the church. We'll lay hands on them. We'll pray for them and dedicate that child to the Lord and pray for those parents. The only difference is we don't slaughter an animal and let its blood flow out and then burn its carcass to a crisp on a, on a fire. God says to Abraham, he says to him, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love. And he says, I want you to take him to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. There's that word, isn't it? Burnt offering on the mountain, which I will show you. 
For 25 years, Abraham and Sarah had waited to have a son. There were promises associated with who this son would be and what God would do through his life. And notice these words. They're they're very deliberately chosen. He doesn't just say, your son. He says, your only son whom you love. Imagine how painful adding those words is. Not just take your son and do this. He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. It's like he's twisting the knife in his heart. And God is is asking him to offer his son as a burnt offering. Remember what a burnt offering means. Dedication, holding nothing back. So here's what's happening. God is testing Abraham's dedication. He's asking a question, Abraham, are you willing to obey me no matter what I ask you to do, even if it doesn't seem to make sense to you? Are you willing to do anything I ask of you? And apparently Abraham is because he takes Isaac and they set off on this journey. They travel for three days until they get to the land of Moriah, Mount Moriah. And Isaac, you know, he, he's able to put two and two together and he's able to say, wait a second, dad. So uh, we've come all this way and um, we've got wood for the fire. You know, we've got uh, matches and uh, a hatchet. But uh, where is the animal for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, don't worry about it, son. God will provide himself a lamb. And so Abraham and his son, they work together and they build an altar out of stones. You can imagine them you know, gathering rocks, piling them up on top of each other. Then they set the kindling for the fire you know, and lay a bed of wood underneath it because they're going to sl- slaughter this animal, put it on top of there, and then light the thing on fire. And then at one point, Abraham says to Isaac, he turns to him and says, son, actually... I'm going to need you to get up there on that altar. And amazingly, Isaac does it. And it's amazing because Isaac is not a small child at this point. He's quite big and Abraham's very old. And so it would not be difficult for Isaac to overpower his dad and run off if he wanted to. He doesn't have to do this. In other words, he could get out of this. There's so many things in the story that are amazing and incredible. For example, Abraham's faith and obedience, but also Isaac's surrender. So Isaac climbs up onto this altar and says, okay, go for it. And Abraham raises this knife in his hand. He's about to plunge it into the heart of his son, his only son, whom he loves. And at that moment, God speaks and says, Abraham, stop. And God says, now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your son, your only son, whom you love from me. And God shows Abraham a ram caught in a thicket, a nearby bush. And Isaac gets down from the altar and the lamb takes Isaac's place as his substitute there on the altar. And Abraham slaughters the lamb in Isaac's place, sacrifices the lamb as a burnt offering to the Lord. So this is where this practice comes from of offering a burnt offering of a lamb to the Lord as a way of dedicating your children to God. That story there in Genesis 22, it ends by saying this. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now, you might read that story and you might think, What is this? This is kind of a cruel, sadistic game that God is playing with Abraham. Is God this insecure that he has to bring this guy to the point of killing his own child just to prove that he loves him more than anything else? Doesn't that seem a bit cruel, sadistic, you know, insecure? 
But there's actually a reason why God does this. And if we don't see it, we won't understand the story. First of all, consider the place where this took place. Apparently, this place is really important. He names the place over and over. Mount Moriah, in this place, the Lord will provide. As people say to this day, what mountain is this? Well, Mount Moriah, where is that? Go with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. I'll just read you this one verse. Here's what it says. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord, the temple, in Jerusalem, on Mount Moriah. Wait a second. So Jerusalem is built on top of a mountain. If you've ever gone there, we got to go there earlier this year, and that's exactly right. You have to go up a hill to Jerusalem, and it sits on top of a mountain, and that mountain has a name. Its name is Mount Moriah. They even call it that to this day. You can see it written in places. This is the hill on which the temple is built. This is the hill of which part of the hill is a hill, is a separate hill within a hill called Calvary. See, it's the same hill where Mary and Joseph are standing right now at this moment to make the sacrifice for dedication for Jesus. It is this hill where Jesus is going to later be crucified. This is very deliberate language. Remember, your son, your only son, whom you love. It is here in this same place where Jesus, the son of God, the only son of God, who is loved by the father, is going to be led by the father to be sacrificed. Jesus, the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And whereas Abraham was told to stop and not sacrifice his son because a substitute was provided, when it comes to Jesus, the father holds nothing back. Remember, dedication, he holds nothing back because Jesus was the substitute for you and for me. See, the sacrifice of dedication, it pointed back to the sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac, which pointed forward to the sacrifice that Jesus would make on that very same hill, Mount Moriah, where he now is held as a baby for the purpose of dedication. If you've ever doubted whether or not God really loves you, here's the answer to that question. This should settle it once and for all. God gave his son, his only son, whom he loved for you. Jesus said this, he said, greater love has no one than this, than that they would give their life, that they would lay down their life for their friends. And that's exactly what he did. Paul the Apostle told us this, God proves his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus held nothing back. He was wholly dedicated to you. And the question is this, how will you respond to that? How will you respond to that level, that measure of love and grace that is found in him? The only appropriate response is to give all of yourself to him who gave all of himself for you. To be wholly, completely dedicated to him, holding nothing back. So here's Mary and Joseph. They bring Jesus to the temple to dedicate him. And the way this dedication takes place, according to the law of Moses, is you present a lamb as a burnt offering and a turtle dove for a sin offering. The only problem is, as you'll notice in the text, they didn't bring a lamb. Instead, they bring two turtle doves. Now, why did they do that? Because again, if you'll read Leviticus chapter 12, it tells us this. There was a provision made for the poorest of the poor. If you were so poor that you couldn't afford a lamb for sacrifice, then you were allowed to bring two turtle doves. And what this tells us is that Mary and Joseph were poor. In other words, when God came into the world, he could have chosen to be born into privilege and wealth and comfort, but instead he chose to associate with the lowly and to be raised in a poor family. 
2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, it tells us this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. See, this is what Christmas is all about. This is what the incarnation means. God left the riches of heaven. He became poor so that he might make you rich. And Jesus said this. He said, what does it profit a person if they gain the whole world, all the wealth in the world, all the power, whatever the world wants? What does it benefit you if you gain everything in this world and you lose your soul? In other words, what Jesus is saying is this. True wealth. True riches cannot be measured by how much money you have in the bank. It can't be measured by the number of your investments. No, true wealth is something deeper than that. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul says that in Jesus we've been given all spiritual riches, the riches of God's grace. We've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. And that is why Paul, the apostle, later on when he explains his life in 2 Corinthians, he talks about his life and he says, you know, to be a Christian is an incredible paradox. It's an incredible paradox. He says, on the one hand, outwardly, I suffer. Outwardly, I suffer. But inwardly, I am always rejoicing. Outwardly, I'm poor. I don't have a dime in the bank. But inwardly, Not only am I rich, but I am so rich that I have stuff to give out and give to others. I can make others rich as well. Outwardly, I have nothing, he said, but inwardly, I possess everything. That's the paradox of these true spiritual riches, this true wealth. No one can take it away from you, and it will go with you when this life is over. Therefore, to be a wise man and a wise woman is to take the wealth and the resources of this world and invest them in things which will pay eternal dividends. Jesus became poor in order to make us rich. If you want to know how much you matter to God, if you want to know how valuable you are to God, here's what you need to do. You need to look at Jesus. You need to realize this, that God values you so much that he left the riches of heaven and became poor in order to give you those heavenly riches. And the question is this. Once you've received them, what are you going to do with them? Once you've received these riches, what are you going to do with them? What are you going to do with this incredible wealth that you've been given in Jesus? You see, when it really sinks into you, when the generosity of God towards you really sinks in, when you really begin to grasp just how good and generous he has been towards you, the effect it has on you is that it transforms you and it makes you into a generous person towards others. So that's the first part. He became rich. Or he said, he who was rich became poor. The second thing I want you to see, the meaning of Jesus' incarnation is this. God and sinners reconciled. Starting in verse 25, we read that Mary and Joseph, they were bringing Jesus into the temple, and there was a man there named Simeon. It tells us this about him. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation or the comfort of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So as Mary and Joseph are walking into the temple, holding Jesus, holding their two turtle doves, this man Simeon is standing there at this very moment, and he sees them walk in, and his eyes fix on Jesus, and he walks up to Mary and just takes Jesus out of Mary's hands and and holds her in his own hands. 
I wonder what Mary was thinking, just because as a parent, I kind of put myself in Mary's shoes, right? On the one hand, she's been put as responsible for the Messiah, right, which is a big deal. But on the other hand, this is also her first child. And I remember when my wife and I, we brought our first child to church, and everybody wanted to hold him, and we said, no. I don't care if you've been a parent for years, you've had five, six kids, doesn't matter. We've been parents for two weeks, and we know how to do this better, and you're probably going to hurt our kid and probably kill him and make him sick, right? And so, no, you can't hold our child, never, right? And like, and you get those people who come up to you, and they're going to just take your baby out of your hands without asking. It's the worst, right? So they just come up, and they grab the baby. And then what, what ensues is this kind of very delicate tug of war where you're like, I'm not letting go of this baby, but I you know, can't like pull on it, right? So you're like, gentle tug of war to try and make sure that person doesn't get your baby. And, but I'll tell you this. We've had three kids now. By the time you get to number three, anybody who wants to hold your baby, please, right? It's like a relief. Thank you. I'm so exhausted. Please hold my baby, right? You're sick. Doesn't matter. It'll build up their immune system. They'll be fine, right? Simeon takes the baby and, and holds him in his hands because he realizes that this is the one. This is the Messiah. And he says, thank you, God. Now I can die, right? That feeling. I can die in peace because I have seen the one who will bring salvation to all the people of the world, Jews and Gentiles alike. And it says there in verse 33 that Mary and Joseph were blown away by this. Why? Because they hadn't told anybody that this is the Messiah. They didn't walk in and say, hey guys, the Messiah is here. But this man, by the Holy Spirit, knew that this was the one. Verse 34, Simeon turns to them and he says this. He says to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It was a huge honor for Mary to be chosen to be the one who would bear the Messiah, the mother of the Messiah. But, but Simeon is telling her it's an honor, but it's also going to be a pain. It's going to be hurtful. It's going to be a struggle. A sword is going to pierce through your soul because this child will be a sign that is opposed. That phrase, a sign that is opposed, it literally means he will be a target which is shot at. He will be a target that is shot at. People are going to take shots at him. They will attack him. And he says, it will be like a sword piercing through your heart, Mary. And he says, Jesus, this boy is going to lead to the fall of many and the rise of many. You see, Jesus is like a watershed where the rain comes down and it divides it on one side or the other. We often think of Jesus as the great uniter of humanity. In some ways, he absolutely is. He unites people of all classes, all nationalities, all generations. But in another way, Jesus also divides. Because here's why. Jesus demands that you make a decision about who he is and where you stand and what you're going to do with him. You're either going to be for him or you're going to be against him. There's no middle ground. For those who humble themselves before God and recognize their need for grace and forgiveness, he will raise you up. But for those who exalt themselves, he will be your fall, right? He, he opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Right after this encounter with Simeon, they encounter somebody else there in the temple, somebody who's a prophetess named Anna. It says that she was 84 years old and she never departed from the temple. She worshiped and fasted day in and day out. And coming at that very hour, she saw Jesus and she began to thank God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Here's what's interesting about Simeon and Anna. 
right? It says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, but Anna was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, these two phrases, they actually come from one verse in the Old Testament book of the prophet Isaiah. They come from the same verse. That's what's so interesting. It's Isaiah chapter 52, verse 9. We read it in our call to worship. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people, and he has redeemed Jerusalem. Now, in its original context, this verse was spoken to the people of Israel during the Babylonian exile. The reason they were suffering in that exile was because of their sin. It was a result of their sin and rebellion against God. But God was telling them through Isaiah that he had not given up on them, that he had a plan for them, and he was even going to use their present struggles for good in their lives and for their spiritual upbuilding. And guys, those same principles apply even to us today. The suffering that we experience in this world is a result of sin, is ultimately a result of rebellion against God. And yet, God has not given up on us. He has a plan for you to save you, to redeem you, even from this present darkness and to set all things right. And he will even use our current struggles and sufferings for good. You see, our biggest need is to be reconciled to God. Paul the Apostle tells us this in Colossians chapter 1. He says, You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What that tells us is that our default status, our default condition is this. We are alienated from God and we are, there's a hostility between us and God because of our evil deeds. But the good news of the gospel is that God himself has come and he has met your greatest need. God came to us in Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, in order to reconcile us to himself through Jesus' body broken for us. He lived the life that you should have lived. He, lived the, he died the death that you should have died in order to reconcile you to himself. We made the mess, but he came in and fixed it. And that's why it says in Isaiah 53, Isaiah is talking about what the Messiah will do in his physical body to reconcile us to God. And he says this, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. And let me just ask you this before we move on to our last point. What does that tell you about your worth as a person? What does that tell you about how much God values you? You know what it means? It means that God wants you. He wants, he desires to be reconciled to you. He's done everything in order for that to happen. He desires to have a relationship with you. He values you so much. And when you receive this salvation, like Simeon and like Anna, you can die in peace because you know that you've been reconciled to God and what awaits you is not fearful judgment, but joyful reunion with your creator. Because God, the ultimate judge, came and he took your judgment upon himself so that you could be reconciled to him and have a relationship with him. But that's not all. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says this. He says, not only has God reconciled us to himself, but he has given us a ministry of reconciliation. In other words, once you've entered into this reconciled relationship with God, now God is calling you to help other people enter into that reconciled relationship as well. God and sinners reconciled. That's what the incarnation, God with us, is all about. 
about. And let's finish with this final point. Favor with God and man. That's what we see in the last part of this chapter. The final story we have about Jesus' childhood comes from a time when he was 12 years old. We know that the family was now living in Nazareth up north by the Sea of Galilee. But in verse 41, we're told that every year they would travel down to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. So this particular year, when the feast was over, the whole family, relatives and all, right, extended family, aunts, uncles, they all leave Jerusalem together, heading back up to Nazareth. And when they had traveled for one whole day, Mary and Joseph look around and they realize Jesus isn't with them. If you ever wondered where the plot line for Home Alone came, here it is right here. Jesus is the true and better Kevin McAllister. That's the point. And so Mary and Joseph go running back to Jerusalem. They're freaking out. Where's Jesus? God put us in charge of Messiah. We're blowing it, right? We lost the Messiah. How could we do that? We misplaced him. And they look around. It says for almost an entire day, they finally find him. It says three days later, they found him in the temple, sitting with the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said, son, why have you done this to us, right? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Like, you're killing us. What are you thinking? And he says to them, where would you think I would be? Don't you know that I have to be in my father's house? In that day and age, interesting kind of thing about Jesus being 12 years old. In that day and age, a son would generally take up his father's trade. If your dad was a fisherman, you'd be a fisherman. And it usually, they, the age 12 was when they would begin to train an apprentice or train their son to take over, to work in the father's business. And so here's Jesus at age 12, aware of his calling. He's a student of God's word. And it says at the end of the chapter, they came back home to Nazareth and Mary treasured these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and man. Jesus grew physically, he grew spiritually, and he grew mentally. What we see here is that is Jesus' full humanity. God became one of us in every aspect. He had to grow just as we have to grow. And Jesus understood that in order for you to grow, you need to be in fellowship with other people, studying the word of God. And if Jesus needed that in order to grow, don't you think you need that in order to grow as well? The word of God in community with other people. Would it be too much for me to bring in here just an unashamed plug for community groups, right? Like, I'm going to do it, right? Community groups, get in one. Jesus needed community and Bible study to grow, and so do you. If he needed it, how much more so do we? Now, it's one thing to believe that what the Bible says about Jesus is true. It's one thing to nod your head and say, yeah, I guess that's true. But it's another thing to treasure it. It's another thing to treasure Jesus. As we've looked at in this series, everything we've talked about boils down to this. God treasures you. He treasures you. That's why he who was rich became poor so that through his poverty you could become rich. That's why God came to us so that he could reconcile us to himself at infinite cost. It's the reason why God did not spare his son, his only son, whom he loves, so that you and I could become sons and daughters of God. How do you take hold of that rich, that, that wealth? How do you take hold of those riches that God offers you in Christ? Here's how you do it, by trusting in Jesus, by clinging to him and what he did for you. And then you go one step further 
by treasuring him. By treasuring him. May we be those who give all of ourselves to him, who gave all of himself for us, holding nothing back. That's what he did for us. Let's respond in like manner. Amen? Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you did for us. We thank you for this great gift that you've given us. And Lord, let us be those who do not look, that, look at that gift lightly. Let us be those who celebrate that gift, who receive it. Lord, I pray for anybody here today who says, you know what, I, uh, I believe in Jesus, but I don't know if I treasure him. Lord, I pray that today would be the day where they take that step, where they cling to you, they trust in you, and they treasure you, that you become their all-encompassing greatest treasure. Lord, let us live in that way because of what you've done for us, because of how you've treasured us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.